Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Helen Thompson. I'm Professor of Political Economy at um, Cambridge University, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to this event and to welcome Adam Tooze. Adam is the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. He's the author of a, a brilliant trilogy about the last century, though I'm not sure whether Adam would entirely agree it's a trilogy, but I think that it is. Uh, the Deluge, The Great War, America and the Remaking of the Global Order, 1919 to 1939. The Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy and Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crisis Changed the World. He also has a fantastic substack that I hugely recommend called Chartbook. Now, Adam's been thinking pretty forensically and magnificently uh, about what we've been going through in real time with the pandemic and the economic and political consequences of that. And his latest book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World Economy, which is really about the story of 2020. You can find a link to the book Shutdown um, on the live chat, and you can join this conversation on Twitter using the Twitter hashtag RSA Shutdown. Adam, thanks so much for being here and the fact that you and I get to have another conversation about this book, which we've already, as we know, um, had one. I want to just start by asking you about the relationship between Crashed and Shutdown and the world of Crash that you're described uh, and how you see the political legacy of 2020. Because there is a way, I think, in which you can say, look, the politics of this just become very, very different. That what we see in after the crash of 2007, 2008, is this is the world of central banks' response to crisis. And whilst, as we both know, central banks have been a pretty important part of what happened, I mean, a crucial part of what happened in March, nine, sorry, March 2020, is, is that we've also seen a much, much more active state. We've seen governments do just kinds of things that would have seemed inconceivable, I think, in mm-hmm. back in 2008, whether that be in terms of furloughs, whether that be in terms of personal household stimulus checks, whether that be the state back vaccine innovation um, programmes and the direction of travel for the, the European Union with the um, recovery fund. But given it's the case that we've also seen the central banks having to do what they did in 2008 on, or 2007, 2008, almost literally on steroids, that we're now into the world of QE infinity. Is there any sense in which you think we have left the world of crash behind? And that we're not going to be dealing with the same kind of legacy that we had after 2008? Have we actually experienced another complete rupture? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an evasive sort of answer, but I, I think I'm going to go with it's too soon to tell and it's all to play for um, in the sense that I think the narrative after 2008, after all, was central banks assumed the centrality that they did in large part, part by default. I mean, there was a moment during the crisis when they were essential and indispensable actors because it's in the nature of financial crises that only central banks can address them because they're liquidity crises. And that's what central banks do. But then it was really in the aftermath with the swerve to austerity politics on the fiscal side, which really began in earnest in 2010 globally in the UK 
UK, of course, but then also the, via the G20 globally and in the US with the deadlock in Congress. That's what forced the central banks to become the absolutely pivotal player of economic policy. I mean, they then, astonishingly, and the signs of, as it were, the weird inversion that we were in at that moment are that the central bankers became powerful advocates of fiscal activism, which is, you know, historically profoundly anomalous, given the story they generally tell themselves about the genesis of modern central banking in the 70s and 80s. Where we're going to end up with this going forward from here is, it's, I think, I, I mean it quite seriously, is yet to be figured out. And it depends crucially on this interaction, as it were, between the potential players. And, and it's going to be complex. We haven't yet seen the sort of collective push for austerity that was orchestrated between various governments through the G20. We should also just remind ourselves of the timeline. You know, if the 2008 crisis is in 2008, the austerity push begins two years later, not immediately, right? not in the fall of 2009, but really the following summer. So we're on that timeline. and And that's what we should be looking out for because as the economies bounce back as talk of recovery and normalization sets in the that's when the fiscal conservatives will gather because in the moment of the crisis they lose their footing it's in the aftermath that, as it were they return to the forefront and we're seeing signs of that in the uk if you look at the discourse around the budget um uh, I mean, yesterday, the BBC's coverage was, you know, dramatically pushing for this kind of line. We spent, you know, we wrote, we ran up debts. Now we have to, quote, have to pay back, for which there is no compelling economic logic whatsoever. But there may indeed be a compelling political logic. And in two other places, this is up for grabs right now. Right? The, the, the two strategic nodes in the global system, one is Washington and the other is Berlin. And in both places, the day-to-day -day politics of this moment, the, the, you know, literally the nitty-gritty coalitional politics of this moment, one vote here or there, in the American case, literally two votes, in the German case, the shuffling of cabinet positions in the what looks like it's going to be a, a SPD-Schultz-led government, I think are widely interpreted as harbingers of the kind of struggles that will go on. So that I mean that it's too early to say also in the non-trivial sense that it's actually seriously a matter of political struggle at this moment. And um, certainly, I know, I mean, both you and I think of ourselves as, as it were, participants in that public debate. And, um, and that, that there's a real there's a real sense of, as it were, trying to shape the the where we go from here in in out of the out of the political space itself. I mean, we're going to talk about climate more generally um, in a moment, but I just wonder how far you think in this on this issue. So whether there's going to be such serious pressure for fiscal retreat, whether climate and the infrastructure commitments that have come out of the response to the, the COVID crisis really change things. Because part of the discourse around sort of austerity, we're going to call it that, last time was still really bound up, I think, particularly in Europe, perhaps, with welfare state issues, and it certainly wasn't, you know, in Britain, the idea um, that the, the, the state was spending too much money um, on, on welfare was quite central to the narrative that George Osborne, for instance, constructed about the response to the uh, crisis and tying it into the claim, you know, sort of conflating the issue of Labour's borrowing with the causes of the financial crisis in a really quite disingenuous um, way. But in terms of the scale of the fiscal commitments, this time and the substance of the fiscal commitments they don't look like what was at debate up for debate 
you know, from 2010, 2011 onwards. These are being presented, I think, the fiscal commitments now um, as much more transformational because they're being, you know, saying that actually the energy transition is only possible um, with the state taking investment seriously. Now, I think we would probably both agree that the scales are not large enough for what, what is necessary, but still I think it changes the framing quite yeah. considerably. It was the fiscal austerity debate last time was kind of like looking back to those welfare sort of, is the state big enough? Is the state too, too, too I mean, is the state too big? This time it seems like it, it starts from looking forward and that does seem to me quite a difference. Another, I think that's absolutely right, and it's another way of couching it would be, as it were, the difference between thinking of public expenditure as purely consumptive, which is a terribly bad habit of mm. national income accounting, and recognising that it's investment. Uh, and that changes, as it were, the perspective from being a sort of, you know, the drain on the vital bodily fluids of the healthy economic organism, the sort of welfareist take, to, you know, investments in infrastructure and so on for the future. I think how that plays out depends critically on the political context in which, you know, those arguments are made. I mean, in Germany right now, precisely that kind of logic appears to be working at the domestic level. So from what, from what one hears from inside the rather tightly held coalition negotiations, the Liberals, who are the fiscal hawks in the trio of Greens, SPD, Liberals, appear to be amenable to that kind of argument so long as it's concerning domestic investment in tech and green. Um, and so they're talking about various sorts of off-balance sheet construction. Mm -hmm. So the, in a sense, it still replicates those old divides, you know, so long as it's investment and it's not on the public balance sheet, if it's some other sort of debt for which there's a notional guarantee, we're, we're cool with it because they can't really let go of the idea that the public balance sheet is in the end the drain, is in the end consumptive. So they'd rather have it literally on a sort of not properly supervised quasi-state bank, which then looks more private and keeps their sort of entrepreneurial hearts happy. In the US, unfortunately, we're still in the trenches on this. And it's not obvious that, that we have really made a regime shift. It's not simply the the scale of the Biden programs, which even when they were first announced in the spring, were half what the Green New Deal or less than half what the Green New Deal had asked for. But um, they've been further whittled down now where the only bit that, you know, really ha already has a solid majority is the bipartisan bit, which is one trillion dollars over 10 years, which, given the scale of the US economy, is really very small. Um, but when you think more generally about the extraordinarily confused debate that's been going on about this package of energy investments, long term, you have to say, investive welfare spending, things like early childhood education, which economists actually calculate as having some of the highest rates of return for any kind of, quote, investment expenditure that you can engage in. Those have all got, in, you know, entangled in Joe Manchin's, you know, defense of American culture against the curse of entitlements. So we're not out of the woods there. It, it really does depend on the political context in which you're arguing. In general, though, if you talk to the Biden people who are pushing their case, they'll, they'll, they'll pursue exactly the line that you just have. And they'll remind you of the fact that even if they only get the tiniest element of their package through, it'll still be way more than they were able to consider under Obama. Certainly beyond 2009, you know, it's the second phase of the Obama administration, which was really the deep disappointment. So there is clearly on the part of you know centrist democrats in the us whether or not they get their way there is a cognitive shift precisely to that kind of 
I, you know, Ezra Klein and I kind of dubbed it what was supply side liberalism or some supply side progressivism. This idea of of a, a progressive public investment push. Okay, let's go to climate sort of more generally. And um, as I've sort of read through the book several times um, now, I get the sense that climate stalks the book. Yeah. And it partly does because obviously, as you said, you were you were writing a book about climate when the pandemic started and you put that book down and started to write shutdown. But it, it's also because you describe in quite a, a quite visceral way, I think, in in, in some sense, uh, the moment when Xi Jinping makes goes to the UN and makes commitment for China for net zero by 2060. And now here we are um, about to embark upon um, this crucial climate summit in Glasgow, at least about to embark in terms of when we are actually talking. Um, and as you've already alluded, there kind of is a problem here on the US side because of what has happened in terms of the domestic politics of the United States over the last few um, months. So I've got quite a lot of different questions I could ask you here, but let's just start with that basic question. How is it the case that we've ended up in a position where the nature of the US, in some sense, institutional crisis, the, the way in which the Senate is constructed, the, 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 the changing relationship between the population of small states and their political influence in the in, in the Senate looks like it's such a, a a really big impediment, massive impediment, perhaps to the to, to the future of this climate summit and to climate cooperation at the international level. Yeah, I mean, I like the way you said that climate stalks the book because 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 that was in part biographical. It was also authorial. I mean, I, I I I I tried to do that to kind of hint at it, to keep it there because I think that's. Mm if you're not actually a climate activist full time, then I think that is the way that climate figures for many of us now, is it sits increasingly sort of loomingly, it's like a grey sky, um, or clouds, you know, ever present. Um, and I, I wanted to achieve that effect, it had been absent really from crashed. And I, I and I regret that in a way. So I'm trying to sort of find a way of bringing those things in. But I think also with that comes the dawning recognition of precisely what you're saying, namely that on that issue, perhaps more than any other, the United States is again an absent presence, right? It's it's it, it, and this has dominated global climate politics since the 1990s. This uncertainty of what to do with America, but if you look back, I mean, you, you kindly alluded to, to you know some of my other books, and and if you do go back to the aftermath of World War One, of course, exactly the same thing is true, right? The that in the end, the heart of the world was broken after Versailles, not just by Versailles, which was obviously an incredibly difficult piece for folks to to live with, but also by the fact that then it wasn't ratified by the US Senate. Um, division of powers inherited from the 18th century is a powerful structuring feature of American governance and also its role in the world. And also at certain moments, of course, it's global hegemony or not. I was teaching recently a, a package of readings about agriculture, and there's this extraordinary piece from 1945 from T. Schultz, the, the godfather of human capital theory, where he literally says, you know, America's standing in the world will depend on farmers. And you kind of go, you double take, why? Why on earth? Same argument. It's the Senate. Agriculture, because of the construction of the US Constitution in the 18th and 19th century, is massively overrepresented in the structures of the American Constitution. And so, yes, in all crucial international decision making, 
very tiny states, I mean, West Virginia has a population less than the borough of Brooklyn, um, have two votes. Uh, and one of them is Republican and the other one is Joe Manchin's. And he's a, you know, he's a, you know, he's not an oligarch. He made a small fortune in, in coal brokering. So it's a structural feature of American power. And the sooner everyone else in the world wakes up to it, that's what structured the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement has the completely non-binding quality that it does, in part so that the Obama administration didn't have to put it to the Senate. If it was more binding and Obama puts his signature on it, it has to be ratified by the Senate. And it was clear it would never would be. So one of the reasons why the Paris Agreement almost fails at the very last moment is the French up the ante and add slightly more binding language. And the American delegation says, put that in and we walk away. So this has always been a feature of these negotiations. And increasingly, I think what that means is it also hollows them out, because for the big players, it's evident that you don't rationally condition your strategy on the United States. And that's why that moment that you allude to of Xi moving in September of last of 2020 is so pivotal, because it's clearly the moment where Beijing just announces, look, we're the biggest emitter in the world. We have a huge stake in this. We're much more fragile in many ways than North America environmentally. We're going to move and we're going to move well ahead of the American election at a moment when the American president's about to take uh, the United States out of China, out of Paris, the Paris Agreement. And what we will do for the first time, it's the world's largest emitter, and it's the first time the world's largest emitter has done this, is to say we'll set a, you know, we'll 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 set a target for achieving um, neutrality. And, you know, and then this year they've announced the moment when they're going to try and peak by. So I think in a sense the we're a long way COP26 became this totemic event. You know, we were building up to it really as we entered 2020. And since then, the world has very dramatically changed. We have been, we've had our sense, you know, we've had our noses rubbed in the weakness of the American political system. We know how fragile it is. And I think out the back of it, the status of COP26 is also as a result considerably reduced. What, what matters there is that we don't have blow ups. It's conceivable something constructive might be done, though I think extremely improbable. And and really, this is down to the big blocks moving of their own accord. What's missing then is any kind of more complex, you know, mediation with the big emerging markets. But that's so hugely ambitious that um, it's probably not for that meeting anyway. I mean, I was thinking as you were talking that another way of putting the point might be to say that what really mattered last time, I mean, last time meaning in relation to Paris, was not what happened in 2015 in Paris, but what happened between Obama and Che in 2014, that actually that is what you need, that moment of, of bilateral cooperation between the United States and China, in a way really like it was before China joined the, the World Trade Organization, if you wanted another parallel where US and China make an agreement. And then it don't gets multilateralized. Yeah, don't forget the, I mean, that's how the Americans would tell it. And, but don't forget the European role in the sense that mm. they kept the Kyoto process alive, right? It was unilateral commitment. It was the willingness of the Europeans to stick with the framework of different responsibility, differential responsibility that Angela Merkel negotiated at COP1 in Berlin in 1995. So the willingness of the Europeans to stick with that framework, sign, ratify, and then push through Kyoto, and then do it again at Durban after the disaster at Copenhagen, that, that keeps the entire thing in place. And then within that, yes, Obama can do his, his bilateral deal with the Chinese. And crucially, the Indians are absolutely crucial to this, right? And they will, I think, they're one of the wild cards for this COP because they, at least when I looked yesterday, had not yet made a net zero commitment, and they're the largest emitter not to have so far. And the politics of climate justice in India are so live, so powerful. 
and of course very different because you know china's per capita emissions are now rich country average that's why their total emissions are the size of the total oecd so they really don't have a leg to stand on for them it would have to be history it would be legacy which is a fair point but you know the climate doesn't care but with india the 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 position of course is simply one of justice like they're nowhere near the level of development and energy consumption that other rich powerful nations are at so so how are we going to, you know, how are we going to work this out? That I think remains Delhi's position, and certainly given the strength of nationalism and economic nationalism in India, it's a really and the wild nature of the public sphere, which they don't control in the way that China does, it's a much more difficult bargain for them to broker. But they're crucial, and the Europeans hold the ring um, after Copenhagen. Just on this point, let's talk about China and India in the moment as a, as a way into talking about the way in which set of energy issues at the moment. Um, have come to the fore at the same time or this autumn that COP is um, taking um, place. And in lots of ways, I would say, certainly on the coal side of things, that it's actually China and India that are at the centre of things. Maybe in the European case, it's, it, 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 maybe in the case of gas, it's Europe that's at the, the, the centre of the, the issues that have come to the fore. Now, as we know, and I, and I know you're very understandably sort of anti, you know, opposed to this, is that the... There are people who want to use the present tense energy problems. I will not use the word crisis here uh, to say, look, we've got to take the we've, we've got to rethink aspects of the energy transition transition I mean, in ways. I, I think where you and I would actually agree that quite a lot of things that are absolutely nothing to do with the energy transition are getting blamed for 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 for, for problems that are actually inherent to um, the oil and gas markets in um, in particular. But I, I don't think there's any doubt. I don't think there can be any doubt if we just stick with China is, is, a, is, a, is that the Chinese leadership thinks of China as facing multiple problems at the same time, that it does think it has a coal problem. Let's not use the word crisis again. It does think it has gas problems, less so perhaps that it has oil um, problems. And certainly the Indians think that they have a coal um, problem. Now, as you say, there is a difference between climate attitudes in, 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 in India and climate attitudes in um, China. But if you look at it from the Chinese perspective, I, I don't think that they want to say that these are separate crises that can be compartmentalized, that they want to say they're all, I am now, I know reverting to the language of crises, but forgive me for that, that they're all crises that are happening at the same time. And in a way, you're quite sympathetic to that sort of like way of thinking because you, and you and I agree about this, I think that there is something that could be meaningfully called a polycrisis that is occurring at the moment, where the very nature of the crisis that we face is that multiple crises are occurring simultaneously and interactively um, with each other. So when you think about that polycrisis, where do you put energy and climate both in themselves and in relation to each other? Are they at the epicenter and things spread out from them? Or is that, in your terms, a, a quite dangerous way of um, thinking because it makes the practical present tense problems of energy a bit too overwhelming? Yeah, I think that's really the the the, the key. Overwhelming. I love that. I love that. I love that mm. word at the end there. I mean, I think you know, there's this phrase, isn't? I think from psychoanalysis of overdetermination, and mm. and and uh, there is something. Um, I hope it's not pejorative to say so, but like, there's something hysterical about the reaction in the current moment, in which a whole variety of different causes and symptoms are being conflated into something that's called the energy crisis. I mean, if 
if there's one thing I'd like folks to take away from our conversation and this recording is, is just be super skeptical when anyone's trying to sell you that story, step back and think, hang on, does this even add up? How do these things connect? How could those timelines really possibly work? It's a textbook case, I think, of what Mikhail Kaletsky, the you know, left Keynesian, warned of in 1943 when he said, as soon as you start pushing government policy, what the business lobby is going to come with is confidence. And that's exactly the argument that we've seen in recent months being trotted out by people that really ought to know better and outlets which are more serious than this sort of discourse, really. The, 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 where the basic logic is you've been talking so much about net zero, the fossil fuel industry is feeling bullied, so the capacity isn't there, so don't blame us when prices spike. And if you really want to have stable price developments in future, then really we need to be talking about new investments in fossil fuels. And, you know, the one we want you to talk about is gas. I mean, coal is a done deal. It's finished. Oil is its own separate thing. And gas is really the pivot here. So if you ever see energy crisis and gas talk, and then the word transition feel that all your alarm bells ought to be ringing and just go, it's, this is lobby talk. The, uh, the International Energy Agency, which cannot be accused of being like excessively green, has come out point blank and said this is a misinterpretation of the current crisis it doesn't have anything to do with this this is tendentious talk and they literally say it would be tragic if anyone interpreted the current crisis as indicative that we should back away from that zero i mean they've said it like and 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 it's really it's astonishing how much traction this idea has gotten so to, to your general point i think living in a world of poly crises one of the, as it were, skills, it's almost like a matter of attitude, of affect that we need to develop is a kind of coolness, right? We need to develop a kind of calmness in the face of what are undoubtedly, like we both agree, like astonishingly bewildering, hard to analyze situations. And one of the things you need to do at all costs is avoid the quick fix intellectually. The end of the quick, ah, oh, I get it. Like, and then also the false historical analogy to my mind, you know, am I, I'm really, really like, antsy about this like these the quick 1970s 1920s 1930s or whatever um because those to me are the beginnings of sort of ideological constructions i mean concretely we are dealing clearly with a, a you know, remarkable spike in well, three different types of prices like as i think it's i don't i mean you're you're the great expert on this but like it's interesting also to see how separate these logics are we think of the energy market as a single thing mm -hmm. itself a historical construct really since the 1980s spot markets didn't exist before then with big futures contracts and they didn't really integrate since until the 1980s there's oil there's coal there's gas and they follow quite different logics but in each different separate rhetorical space in the US, it's the pump price of petrol that drives the energy crisis discourse. And then you just glob on everything else. And all of a sudden, you've got yourself an argument about net zero. In, in the Asia, as you say, it's, it starts with coal because coal drives their electricity generating system. Um, and then the link across Eurasia, between Asia and Europe is gas. And that actually is an interconnected market now with pipelines and LNG shipments and the ripple effect that you're talking about. And again, I think it's absolutely crucial to just be, you know, trace these lines, be precise about cause and effect. The ripple effect does appear to start with gas in Asia as well, because they had this very super cold early in the year. Yeah. And then it goes through these interconnected markets. There's a bunch of log jams in Europe, a lot of politics about that as well, immediately finger pointing at Gazprom. Very unconvincing as a story once you understand how the European gas pool works now. But nevertheless, Gazprom is operating then as a speculative actor. And we shouldn't underestimate the force here of of financial factors you know we very rapidly when we go to energy that's one of the things that attracts both you and me to it i think as a topic is there's a kind of materialism here 
And that's that's really an interesting and powerful way of thinking about the world. But it can be deceptive if what we're talking about are markets and prices. And there's quite it's quite clear, I think, that the extraordinary spikes we've seen in gas prices have been driven by speculative factors to a considerable extent in tight markets, including actors like Gazprom that suddenly discover that they have what they normally don't have anymore, which is pricing power. So it's not, as it were, that Gazprom is provoking a crisis by way of its power. Gazprom is exploiting a tightness in the markets to assert some power for once, which it normally doesn't have. So these are the sorts of, I think, again, it's very early to call this, with far too early to write the history of this, but I think it's not too early to start you know, habituating ourselves to this kind of, you know, deconstruction is not the right word, but like anatomy, anatomizing like these, separating them out and developing a pretty thick skin when it comes to crisis talk, because it's very clear, it's totally tendentious. The interests are absolutely stacked one way, and it's clear this is this is the this is the first of, of a series of confidence crises that are going to get called, and the cards are now pretty clearly on the table. And we just need to get smart about detecting the strategies, because it's bogus. I mean, it and and in any case, even if it were to be the case, and in future it may be. Right now, there's just no link. But in future, if we are forcing net zero and it does cause capacity constraints and prices go up, you've always got to ask yourself, like, what is the better strategy for dealing with this? Upping upping fossil fuel production or thinking of smart furloughs or or thinking of, of income compensation. And and you know, when people use the, I mean, one of the most tendentious one is the freezing granny fuel poverty argument. It's like if that fuel bill is a problem, it isn't the fuel price that's the issue. It's your poverty that's the issue. Address the poverty. Right? You cannot address the problem of inequality and poverty in the UK by way of energy prices You know, and opening up extra gas taps. The solution is to provide people with adequate benefits. Right? And, and so the, the and that solution in inverted commas, the sticking plaster you want to apply is that not as it were backing off uh, carbon pricing or whatever. I mean, I think what I missed, maybe this is a point where you and I don't quite, don't quite agree in that I would say this is that I think that the fossil fuel has its fossil fuel energy. I, I, I say less confident about coal because I'll be honest, I know a lot less about it, um, has its own logic of crisis. And that isn't actually about the relationship between the energy transition and it. So it's not, it, in my mind, it's not the energy transition that's causing the dysfunctionality the complex as they are for the reasons that you said in oil and gas markets, it's its own dysfunctionality that causes this. And it is in itself, that dysfunctionality is in itself a reason why we need to be getting away as rapidly as we can, bearing all the constraints that I think are yeah. in a physical sense uh, in place as to how difficult that that, 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 that that is. And I just want to press you on this uh, one bit more further, um, Adam, before we move on to sort of the question about like, I want to frame it sort of around the Anthropocene and history, which comes out of some of what you've just said as, as well is, is do you think that the Chinese really think, the Chinese leadership really think about it in the way in which you're outlining it? Or do they think of it more in your polycrisis terms of actually that they think that we actually do have to have a strategy for managing our oil consumption, our gas consumption and our coal consumption. And that when we're thinking about that, we can't be simply thinking about, we need to be away from these in the medium term to long-term that they think about them as a short-term problems. Because I don't see the, the Chinese oil companies, for instance, backing away from investments. So I mean by that investments in, in yeah. new capacity. So, I mean, what, 
what's really striking there, I mean, I, it is, is that, again, these sort of conflation of, in fact, kind of opposite effects. So there's no doubt at all that the Chinese throttled power supply to a large part of their industrial mm -hmm. sector. And there's no doubt at all that they did that in part for environmental concerns. In China, of course, pollution is almost as important as climate, but the two things go hand in hand. And the effect of that was to produce you know, shutdowns in the industrial sector. And the effect of that will be in due course to raise the price of things like magnesium in Europe and the United States. And again, if speculators get hold of this story, that price adjustment happens incredibly quickly. And then that package is as it were inserted neatly into the West European and American energy crisis story as though that's what's happening to us. Whereas in fact, of course, the effect of the Chinese doing that is if, if anything to reduce the pressure on global coal markets because they're buying less. You know, and at some point they realized they had to back out and went back into the market and that's driven coal prices upwards. But in that early phase, as it were, you can sort of modularize, oh, a power station's shut for lack of coal or by a political decision. So that fits my narrative. I'll plonk that into my story about Western Europe. And it's, a, it's just completely incoherent with regard to the actual causal logic because the Chinese decisions imply um, a pullback. Uh, in global demand. Overall, I think all of those factors add up to a pretty compelling case, which I think is understood in Beijing, to double down on renewable investment, which is one thing that they can do domestically, which is clean, which they are industry leader in, and which promises in the longer term, if, they, if we can get the question of intermittency and storage, right, like the way out of this dilemma and the way out of any kind of exhaustion peak oil concerns you know that that problem goes away if if you can if you can accelerate that that side of things um so i think that's the the dilemma from beijing's point of view is just how quickly can they manage an exit from from uh you know this incredibly carboniferous route they went down which, which essentially to do with coal right they are they are large consumers of oil now but that's because they're a huge economy not not because they are heavily motorized i mean they never they haven't gone near the peak levels of motorization in the west nor will they ever because they're now the world's leader in ev so the oil they're importing you know in longer term will be largely for industrial uses and it will be petrochemicals that are going to be you know going to be at the heart of that and i think they're sort of on the fence a little bit about gas lng was used earlier in the year to offset some of the shortages they had on the coal side and because they were facing an exceptionally cold year but i think as it were the chinese decisions you know are, are are about i think at this moment structured by the question of how you decarbonize an economy massively dependent on coal first and foremost okay i'm going to slightly turn from where i was intending to go because i just wanted to initially intended to go i just want to pick up something there, which is about the relationship between present tense timeframes and medium and long-term timeframes uh, in relation to um, decarbonisation and how or how far that you think that actually for the, the short to medium term that what we need to do, we must do in relation to the climate crisis actually requires significantly reduced energy consumption, particularly in those parts of the world uh, which would obviously include the parts of the world where we live uh, and actually China in terms of per capita consumption is, 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 is very high. Um, and part of the reason why I ask this is because we live in a world where we have seen you know, significant behavioural change come about because of the, the, the pandemic in ways I think that I remember one of our conversations we had in November like 2020 where we were sort of both in a way struggling with, well, 
how did that happen? That assumption that that we couldn't have shut down mm-hmm. in terms of our individual lives turned out not mm-hmm. actually to be to, to, to be right. So if being really serious about the climate crisis it, now and in the next five years involves reduced energy consumption, have we learned that we have got the capacity to change our lives in ways we configure our lives in ways in which that make this possible? Or can we not generalize from the ways in which we reconfigured our lives in the pandemic to something as fundamental to how everybody lives as energy consumption? I, and this is a really crucial question, I think. I mean, I think, I'm sure you'd agree, but like, I mean, if we, if we take the climate crisis seriously at this moment, the distinction between short, medium and long term just mm-hmm. collapses. There's no, we don't, there's no, there's no distinction anymore. Um, I mean, and it's a dizzying thought, but I mean, we need to do a 7% reduction in emissions every single year, every single year mm-hmm. for 30 years. And, and, and one year you miss by, by virtue of, you know, the, the compounding logic is, 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 has a huge impact on future reductions that you have to achieve. So we need to reduce all the time every day, basically. And it's an incredibly high bar. Um, short of some spectacular technological breakthroughs, it's an incredibly high bar. And so I think within a short order, you know, I, I anticipate this happening in, you know, the next year or so, that might even be too slow, we are going to realize we are not on that track. Um, because I don't think because what the, the overall reduction we saw in 2020 was in the order of what we would need to do every year. And it's difficult to imagine replicating that. And I don't know how we're going to process that. At this point, this entire problem seems to me a crisis driver, a kind of a cognitive different dissonance driver. It's, it's, it's because the timelines have collapsed, because all of the obvious ways of, as it were, mitigating the stress of the implications of this are actually disappearing before our eyes. I, I can't see how we avoid, you know, getting into really difficult spaces politically and ideologically and just in our conception of the future immediately. I mean, essentially, uh, the next couple of months, I think we're going to come out of COP quite disillusioned. People are going to do math on the trajectories that we're on. We're going to discover in the next 12 months that we're not there. There are going to be come to Jesus moments like the German constitutional court judgment on the German government's policy that simply said, look, this is your carbon budget. You're going to burn it all by 2030. What is your plan for folks younger than 40? Like you're basically, you know, you're violating a fundamental norm in the German constitution, which is the preservation of freedom in key respects. That judgment, to my mind, the more I've thought about it, just seems more and more weighty because it takes the basic Malthusian logic of the carbon budget and draws immediate implications for politics on the basis of really very fundamental principles of liberal rule of law constitutions and says, do something. And the German government, the German political system reacted has it reacted enough yet? We'll see. It depends a lot on this coalition they're forming and decisions they make. And, but those kind of processes, I think, are going to multiply because we're, we're running out of places to hide. And then the question you're asking is, as it were, how can we be part of that process? And I, I have to say, you know, it's I think for all of us, increasingly, anyone who takes this seriously is really facing an increasingly serious dilemma. You know, when do you give up meat? Because you're going to have to give up meat. When do you give up long distance flying? What are you going to do if you're not going to do long distance flying? You know, those are the, those are the immediate choices that most people in the advanced economy world can, can make um, that make a, you know, a really big difference quickly. 
And um, we saw some change last year, for sure. Um, you and I are doing this by Zoom. I don't think we would even have thought of doing it by Zoom before 2020. Now it just seems like the most obvious thing in yeah. the world to do it by Zoom. Why on earth would I fly to London to do this conversation? Um, but we might have. You know, I mean, I've, I've flown across the Atlantic to give a single academic paper. I mean, it, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's absurd. Um, it was absurd. Um, so I do think there are, there are, there are, there's room for those kind of shifts, but is it adequate and is it cumulative? And does it, you know, does one step logically lead to the next? And how can one sustain that if all around you, no one else is acting? I mean, all of those problems, I think, which have been widely discussed in the climate movement for decades now, are just getting more and more, you know, immediate. And the default, the, the moral and political significance of not acting on those is just increasingly glaring and conspicuous. Yeah, just there's a, a, a last question, because unfortunately we're going to run out of time um, pretty soon. I mean, I agree with everything you just said. What about it from the politician's point of view in democ democratic politics in uh, particular? Um, I mean, is there a way in which they can actually be taking this crisis seriously um, without thinking about involving the state in the rationing of energy? Because on the one hand, you can say, OK, you can deal with the problem by sort of pricing people out, essentially letting the price of, like the price of energy rise. And then, as you said, compensating people directly, effectively making it possible for for that for them to maintain um, at least minimal energy consumption that they're accustomed um, to by directly giving them the money um, to do so or are we talking about a, a, a future in which actually the, the politicians the governments are actually making much harder decisions in a way of the kind the Chinese are already having to engage with about rationing yes. energy in the industrial sector the western politicians are going to be having to think about what would it mean to ration energy consumption to households? I don't think we need to go to households in the first instance. Mm. Uh, we may need to get there, but in the right in the first in the first instance, we definitely need to get used to load shedding as a management strategy. Uh, but above all, and and we need, if necessary, if that involves temporary unemployment, we've learned the lesson of twenty twenty. We know furlough systems work; um, they work really well. They're very efficient. We're going to have to consider that for those sectors which are extremely sensitive and exposed to this. Um, I think um, this is obviously, I mean, that this is a sort of dead end type question. It's like, if we end up there, are we really saying this isn't going to happen? I think the only way to escape that is uh, investment, investment, investment uh, and technology, right? Because we need, we need things which make these trade-offs easier and we need them incredibly urgently. We needed them yesterday. We definitely need them tomorrow. We're not going to get them tomorrow, but if we need them much quick, much more quickly, I think, than, than people really realize. Um, so, and again, you know, the, the concrete implications of this are very visible in Germany because they made this absurd deal, you know, super highly padded, um, uh, uh, just transition deal for coal, which saw the exit culminating in 2038 and the constitutional court judgment throws that out. So that window has got, the, those are the sorts of decisions we're going to have to get used to making. Um, ration the bits which are least conspicuous first, for obvious reasons, and then, um, and the other thing is, and what this really reveals, is the essential nature, this unpicking of myths of crisis that we were talking about as a sort of personal intellectual kind of exercise 
has got to be the work of politics, right? Because the reason why more ambitious green policies work in Europe is essentially some sort of prolonged, it's not hegemonic because that's too strong a word, but the culture was changed of politics such that it is not entirely unreasonable to make certain sorts of argument. There is a broad agreement about the exit from internal combustion engines. And the question is when and how and who gets to be the industrial leader. And if you don't do that work, if politics really does remain confined to making choices within the existing preference set, there's no good answers here, right? So it, it exposes the centrality of politics as changing the field of conversation. And the energy crisis would be an example of an, a place in which you need to do that. And we've seen an example of this with, in, to my mind, horrific, but no doubt it's quite compelling around Brexit and the Tory party, right? That they've changed, they've somehow removed all of the difficulties, econ economic difficulties to a separate space and then relabeled the problems as part of the adventure of, you know, the Brexit sovereignty. Like, so the problems then become reinterpreted as the teething issues of this new future to come. Now, that's the sort of attitude we need to encourage around climate change. It's like, yes, this is an adventure. No, we don't know exactly where we're headed. That's kind of the point. Isn't it exciting? Okay, let's figure this out. Yeah, okay, we've got some issues around energy supply. Yeah. So let's get in there and figure. So if you don't have, if it's this defensive, how much is this going to cost me? You know, how are we ever going to do this? Oh, we probably shouldn't. Then we're lost, right? Unless it has this dynamic of a kind of collective adventure, which is how they've solved Brexit. I think it's really quite difficult to know how this, how this can possibly work. There's lots of things I could say, <laughs> say in response to that, but our time is actually up. Uh, I'm very much hope that Adam and I will continue in some way or another having these um, conversations. Uh, and as I say, I cannot recommend enough both Adam's book, Shut Down, uh, and his Substack newsletter, uh, Chartbook. You really, you really need to be um, subscribed to to, um, to Chartbook. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you'd like to think some more also about the issues that uh, are really existential for us, not just what's going to happen at COP, but for the sort of, as Adam says, I think, for the next few months in a really quite um, urgent way, then there's all kinds of resources um, on the RSA's um, website, including their Regenerative um, Futures um, programme. You can find details of that um, on the website. So thanks again to um, Adam for a fantastic conversation and a fantastic book. And thank you to all of you for watching us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.